following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. And open your copy of God's Word, please, to Jeremiah chapter 19. We'll be in Jeremiah chapter 19. I'm going to begin, uh, as always, with a word of prayer and pray specifically for some of the families who are not able to join us because they're sick or taking care of uh, some loved ones who are sick. So, Jeremiah chapter 19, and then uh, as you turn there, pray with me. Father, thank you for, as always, your gift of, of life and grace and mercy. We're here to celebrate the goodness of Jesus and to remember all that you have done for us in Christ and to celebrate that, to stir up one another, to love and good works. We're here through the weariness of the week, uh, through the difficulties of the seasons, through the the triumphs and the trials, and God, we are, are here, Lord, empty to be filled, and ask that over the next, however left we have together this morning, uh, that we would indeed be filled with gratitude, thankfulness, with, uh, with the Spirit, so that we walk in light of what we are here to study. We pray particularly for those families who are not here, uh, for Aiden and Abby, for, uh, uh, for the Canes, Lord, uh, we pray also for the Forsbergs as they're caring for uh, sick kids and loved ones. We pray for those who are, are sick and, and that they would be encouraged and healed and uh, they would have rest and then quickly to be restored to health and joined again to the fellowship. Uh, we love them, we miss them, and we pray for them uh, this morning now. And uh, again, we pray for this time. It would, it would be used well. We pray for the children who, being in earshot, might hear something that could provoke them to learn more, uh, to repent, to be saved. Yeah, so we love you, God. We thank you, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 19 through 20. Thus says the Lord, Go buy a potter's earthenware flask, or a jar, and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place. The ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Because the people have forgotten me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind, therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no longer be called Topeth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. In this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem, and will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at, 
Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all of its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. And every one shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. And then you shall break the flask in sight of the men who go with you. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, So will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topath because there will be no place else to bury. Thus I will do to this place, declares the Lord, and to its inhabitants, making this city like Topath. The houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah, all the houses on whom roofs offerings have been offered to the host of heaven and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods shall be defiled like a place of Topeth. And then Jeremiah came from Topeth where the Lord had sent him to prophesy and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all of its towns and its, all the disaster that I have pronounced against it because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. Now, Pasher the priest, the son of Emor, was chief officer in the house of the Lord, had heard that Jeremiah was prophesying these things. And when Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord, the next day when he was released from the stocks, Jeremiah said to them, The Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, they shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them into captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all of its gains, all of its prized belongings, all of the treasures of the kings of Judah into the hand of their enemies who shall plunder them and seize them and carry them into Babylon. And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go. And there you shall die. And here, there you shall be buried, you and your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. Jeremiah prays, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me, for whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become a reproach for me, a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him, say all my close friends, watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived, and then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior, and therefore my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, sing, praise to the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. 
Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and to spend my days in shame? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jeremiah, remember, as a prophet, is sent by God to speak on behalf of God to God's people. Here in Jerusalem and in Judah and the inhabitants of that city, you need to hear a message pertaining to their life or their death. Jeremiah's job is to wake them up from their slumber. Their hearts have become cold and hardened against God And Jeremiah's job is to do all that he can to keep them from traversing down the path of destruction. Last week we saw that he called attention to the heart of God by emphasizing the compassion he has, by taking a lump of clay like the potter and showing how it can be remade even if it gets ruined in its process. We saw God's compassion, which prompted us to consider the opportunity for redemption, that God's grace is extended to all those who would turn from their wickedness, that Jerusalem and Judah and the inhabitants there could heed God's warning, could heed God's words, could listen to Jeremiah and to the other prophets, could repent of their sins, return to the covenant, and be welcomed in the house of God again, restored, replenished, refreshed, Just as the potter would remake the clay which was ruined, so God promises and desires to remake those who have ruined themselves with sin. But if last week God's compassion prompted us to consider the opportunity for redemption, this week it's God's justice which prompts us to consider just how quickly and easily that opportunity for redemption can be squandered. Remember we said last week, we quoted from Romans 11, as Paul reminded us that we would do well to note the kindness and the severity of God. Then last week, we considered and noted the kindness of God, the compassion of God, His desire for sinners to repent, His pursuit of those sinners. Well, this week, we consider and note well the severity of God. These are harsh judgments, we read. These are difficult words to consider. But this is the justice and the severity of our God. The same God who is unending in kindness and mercy. Whose love and mercy has no bounds. It is the Lord, we learned, who is abounding in steadfast love. The Lord will not bring judgment because he runs out of mercy, but because we run out of time. Judah will face exile, not because God's patience ran thin, but because their stiff-necked, hard hearts ran out of time. This is a very real and sober warning. This judgment, this warning has teeth to it. Those who read this on the other end of the exile know very well that God was not pretending or playing around, that there would be captivity, exile, There would be judgment. There would be death. There would be famine. There would be great destruction. 
And though the timing in the events of chapter 18, where we see the potter and the clay, and chapters 19 here with the jar, are very different, both in time, they are also clearly linked together thematically. But they were compiled this way intentionally by the, the editor of the book of, or the scroll of Jeremiah, to draw the contrast between these chapters. A lump of clay can be reworked, but a completely shattered vessel cannot be repaired again. Jeremiah was told to go into the city, go to the potter's house once again to buy a jug, a jar, a decanter, something that you would put in your wine. This was not a cheap piece of pottery. This was something important and played a significant role in the life of the ancient civilizations. The name for this had to do with its shape, its long neck, and when you pour it out, it made a particular chugging sound. Well, God said that as he empties and smash this vessel, so he will empty and smash Jerusalem, unless they repent. There's a lot here to unpack. We don't have much time. What I want to do is just consider last week the potter's heart, this week the potter's fury. We'll do this in two headings. First, we'll consider the nature of God's judgment, and then secondly, the proclamation of God's judgments. We're going to consider this from God's point of view as we consider the nature of God's judgment and then from Jeremiah's point of view as we consider the proclamation of God's judgment and all that it entails. First, as we consider the nature of God's judgment, we're going to explore its cause, its effect, and then, of course, its nature. Its cause, its effect, and its nature concerning God's judgment. Notice in verse 4 and 5, we see the cause of God's judgment. We've been clued into this all throughout the letter so far. He's even mentioned that he keeps hitting the same notes over and over again. He says constantly that it's, it's destruction. Well, Jeremiah is a repeating record, and yet this is the message he was called to preach. The cause of God's judgment is this unraveling path of Israel's sin. And notice how he says, Behold, it says in verse 19, in verse 4 of chapter 19, excuse me, because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place, that is the valley where they make offerings to other gods, whom they neither nor their fathers knew or the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled the place with the blood of innocence and built the high places to Baal and have burned their sons and their daughters as burnt offerings, which I did not command. Because of this, the days are coming, coming, declares the Lord, when he would bring judgment upon them. The cause or the origin of God's judgment against Israel, against Judah specifically, is the unraveling path of Judah's sin. Notice it begins with forsaking the Lord. That is, they have turned their back on the covenant that God had entered into with them. And with this covenant, that is the relationship, is the rules that they should live by. It is the law. It is the way. It is the path which we read about in Psalm 1. The way of the righteous which prospers those who seek it. But that the way of the wicked would not be so. They will be judged. But this doesn't happen overnight. It begins with the neglect of the ways of of the Lord, a neglect of the covenant, a taking lightly of what Judah should have taken seriously, 
of failure to come in gladness of heart, in sincerity of mind, a turning of the affections ever so slightly away from God and to others. This, of course, led to idolatry, the definition of which is the placement of anything above God's rightful position in the heart of man. Anything you love more than God or has a greater degree of prominence in your life or heart or mind is an idol, the Bible says. And the moment you begin to forsake God, turning your attention and your affection away, you set it onto something else because our hearts cannot help but worship. We are people who give ourselves to worship. We are not worshipless. We worship. And so if it is not God, it is something else. It might be ourselves. It might be success. It might be many different idols. But the worship of anything else but God is, in fact, idolatry. So what tempts us to turn our affection and our attention, to begin to forsake, neglect, and leave one step by one away from the path of God is what tempts us to draw ourselves nearer to an idol. By further steps we go from neglecting the word of ways of God to embracing and celebrating the idols that we prop up in our hearts to then practicing false religion in forms of injustice. We begin to seek ourselves, our own gain, even if we put a nice spin on it and make it sound like charity or benevolence. Injustice abounds in our heart and mind. And so this is what Judah did. Having forsaken and profaned by making offerings to false gods, they then begin to spill the blood of innocence. They ignore the homeless and the poor. They give little attention to those in need. And even their own children become props in their worship of a false god. This is sort of the extreme which Judah goes down from forsaking God to practicing idolatry, then to sowing and practicing injustice comes the ultimate abomination. They actually are sacrificing their children to a false god, to Baal. They go and slaughter their children and offer their bodies to be consumed by the fire of a god they worship, which does nothing but lead them further and further astray. Now, this is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but this was a very prevalent practice in the ancient world. And so, in order to be like the other nations, with waning promise and waning trust in God, they turned to the false gods of the other nations and allowed the priests to tell them that they must sacrifice even their own children to gain favor with these gods. And perhaps desperate for some sort of affection, answer from A God on high, some were even led to give their children as a sacrifice. This, of course, is an abomination to God. We see that this was never declared by God to do. In fact, several times in the Old Testament, he says, do not sacrifice your children to me or to any other God, which is crazy that he had to say that, but it's there several times. Of course, I'm sure that those in Jerusalem assumed they were worshiping God. Or perhaps they knew that it was some compromise of their worship and yet they were desperate to get some sort of answer back. But God said, not only did I not declare it, this practice of abomination never even entered my mind. It is so 
different and distant from the mind and heart of God to offer as your own child a sacrifice that it is completely foreign to his people. This is how far Judah has come. An unrecognizable people, indistinguishable from the pagan, idolatrous nations around them. They have gone so far as to sacrifice their own children, to bask themselves in the idolatry and the injustice of a false god and false religion, which began not one morning when they decided to do things, but day by day by day, the continual stepping off of the path, having forsaken God's ways and his covenant. So God says, because of all this, in verse 4, in verse 5, I will therefore bring upon you judgment, in verse 6. So this is the cause of God's judgment, the effect of which is severe judgment. In verses 6 through 9, he says that I will bring judgment, the same kind of judgment that you have brought on yourself will be brought by me because of your actions. And notice here that the Lord's judgments are tied to the idolatries of the people. The punishment is fitting for the crime. This is a divine sort of dose of irony and justice mixed up together. Just notice in verse 6 when he says, this will no longer be called the Valley of Hermon or, uh, or, or Topeth, but the Valley, it says, the Valley of Slaughter. In other words, he says, as you were, so you will be. You slaughter innocents, here I will slaughter you. Or in verse 7, he says, I will make ruin or make void the plans or the counsel of Judah. Just like the pot or the vessel that Jeremiah is called to purchase, he says, I will empty you just as you have made void and walked away from the plans of God. In verse 9, he says, those who were willing to sacrifice their own children or maybe stand by idly and knowingly while others did, they will be forced to consume the children themselves as their own children died of starvation and their neighbor died of starvation. They would be forced to eat that which at once they were willing to give up. This is a chilling and gruesome reality brought on by the curses laid upon them because of the covenant-breaking rebellion of Judah. These are the curses that we see in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. When the covenant is broken... Blessings stop flowing, curses come in their stead. And one of the curses is that things will get so bad that you may be forced to eat others. This, of course, isn't God condoning cannibalism or the sacrifice of children. Instead, it is sort of the just deserts of those who practice such abominations before the Lord. We see something like this in Romans chapter 1. When those who have walked and trodden the path so far down through forsaking the Lord, suppressing the truth, embracing idolatry, running through injustice, and practicing such abomination, it says that God gives them over to the lusts and the passions. And they practice all sorts of vile and abominable things. It is not because God's patience has run out, remember, but because they have for so long persisted in their sin that they have come head to head with God's own justice and meets it. This should be a sober warning to us, brothers and sisters, how much like our own sin we become. When we practice little by little sin, idolatry, when we allow our affections and our attentions to be turned slowly to others, we must be careful that we do not become like that which we worship. Jeremiah says elsewhere in the book that they too have become dumb like their idols. 
Their wooden carved images and those who worship them are just like them. So we read later in chapter 20 here that Pashur, who's the priest and the, one of the high officials in the temple, hears all of this going on in Jeremiah and he decides to beat him, to strike him down, to put him in some sort of prison or cell. And once he's released, Jeremiah, perhaps praying a prayer, much like the Psalms, says just what he says to Judah, that Pasher and his ilk will taste the corruption of their own appetite, turning his delights into the source of his own terror. He says, your name is no longer Pashur, which means fruitful all around, but now will be terror on every side. God changes that which he delighted in to be the source of his torment. So in chapter 20, verse 4, Pashur, the priests, and all those who practice such idolatries will lose prominence and status and control because they will be brought into exile. And in verse 5 of chapter 20, the wealth that they have amassed for themselves and their corruption will be scattered abroad and they will be left with nothing, penniless, and led into captivity themselves. And in verse 6, we see that they will not even have the solace of being buried in the city because they have defrauded it for so long. They don't even get to taste the ground for eternity. So what's happening is God is giving this divine dose of irony and justice and to say, you practice such idolatry, you will die with it. It will be the source not only of your undoing, but it'll be the way that you are punished for all eternity. The last several weeks, I've been reading through Dante's Divine Comedy, and in the first part of this, you may have heard of his famous, more famous than the other two pieces, Dante's Inferno, which is just this poetic retelling of, in the medieval times, the, the nine rings of hell that he and the poet Virgil would walk through. And what I've noticed in this is this divine vision of justice that the punishments, just like here in Jeremiah, are intricately connected to the sins that are committed as he visits people in hell. And it creates this sort of symmetry of irony and poetry in their suffering. Just by way of example, in the second circle of hell, which is reserved for those who have pursued the sin of lust, we see that the souls of the lustful are blown about by endlessly strong winds. And this, of course, represents the turbulence of their passion. The irony is that just as the lustful were carried away by their desires in life, they're now they're eternally swept away by the winds in hell. Or in the third circle, where those who have practiced gluttony, they are lying in a vile slush. They symbolize there by waste and the excess of their lives. For those who overindulged in food and drink, they're now forced to exist in this repulsive mixture of filth and experience the opposite of the pleasures they sought in life. And then later, the seventh circle of hell, where the violent against others were condemned, those who committed violence against others are submerged in a river of boiling blood. The irony, of course, being that the violent are now immersed in a river of blood, symbolizing the life that they spilled through their own violence to others. The intensity of the punishment corresponds to the severity of their sins. Now, this isn't biblical. This is just a picture of one poet's dream. But we see that the pattern is the same because God here speaks to those who are practicing particular sins and says, the judgment that comes upon you will fit exactly how you have decided to live your life in rebellion. Those who slaughter innocents themselves will be slaughtered. Those who build and amass for themselves will lose everything. Those whose pride is in the land and not in God will not even be allowed to be buried in the land. You can see the irony and the justice mingled together through God's judgment. But consider then lastly the nature of his judgment. 
that it is unrelenting, thorough, and exhaustive. He goes to the very ends of the depths as he pours out the full wrath of God against rebellion. We are told in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and later in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12 that God is a consuming fire, that he is jealous for his glory. Isaiah 33 says, Who among us can dwell in the consuming fire? Who can dwell with everlasting burnings? The idea is that God burns with passion for his glory. And the scorning and the repudiation of that glory will bring that same burning and fire upon those who resist it. But not only is it unrelenting and thorough and exhaustive, fully poured out on those who is the enemy of God, but it will be permanent. It says in verse 11, of chapter 19, that it is irreparable when God decides to judge. Just as the potter is broken into shreds, so is Judah unable to be brought back together again once God fully and finally destroys it. Once God decrees what will be, it cannot be changed. His decree is forever. But thankfully, Judah is hearing this as a warning not just as something that which will happen, but God may still relent. They may still be like the lump of clay in the potter's hands and not like the hardened pot about to be smashed. They can be preserved and cared for. But the nature of God's judgment means that it is real and coming. And when it does, there is no going back. You cannot put together the jar which is broken. The gate there that they do where Jeremiah is called to do this is really the dump pile of all of Jerusalem, symbolizing that this will be the end of Jerusalem. And indeed it will be. Even after they return from Babylon, out of captivity, Jerusalem never returns to its glory. They never hold the place of prominence they once did under David and under Solomon. Indeed, they remain under captivity and control by other territories and nations. So the nature of God's judgment is that its causes will come when we step off slowly by slowly the path of righteousness, beginning with forsaking the Lord, which leads us into idolatry, injustice, and at its worst, abomination. We see then that the effect of that comes to meet our sin as we practice it, that the judgment is promised on us just as we live it in our lives, and its nature promises then to be unrelenting, thorough, and exhaustive, and once we experience it, we cannot turn back the tide. But we hear not only of God's judgment, but of Jeremiah's proclamation of this judgment. And two things to be said about the proclamation of God's judgment in chapter 20. First, it's necessity, and secondly, it's cost. The necessity of the proclamation of God's judgment and the cost of proclaiming God's judgment. We see first that it has, it has to be done. Jeremiah must preach. He must say, what the Lord commands him to say. He must confront the idols of his times with the word of the Lord. He complains about this in a prayer of lament and protest. He says, you've deceived me, O Lord, in verse 7. I was deceived or coaxed. You are stronger than I, and of course you have prevailed. We can see some sort of wrestling, of course, in Jeremiah's heart. He doesn't really want to do this, but he must. Or whenever, verse 8, whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction, the word of the Lord becomes for me a, a, a reproach and a derision. Every time he preaches and prophesies, he ends up getting slammed 
by insults or marginalization or even persecution. But then he says in verse 9, but if I, if I say that I'm not going to speak, I'm not going to do this anymore, there's in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and indeed I cannot. Deep in Jeremiah's bones is a, a fire. He must speak. He cannot not speak about the mercies and the just judgments of God. He must confront these idols, even though he knows that it will cost him dearly. And brothers and sisters, we too must continue to be bold to confront the idols of our own times. And we do so not in our own strength, but in the strength the Lord provides, not with our own words, but with the words the Lord provides. We not, need not be powerful or impressive evangelists or preachers or public speakers. If we have the word of God, as he says in verse 8, even though as we preach it, it may become a reproach and a derision towards us, it will be exactly what God intends for us to speak. We must confront the idols of our own times with the word of the Lord. This becomes more and more important as our own culture moves further and further away from embracing, accepting, and willing to understand the things of Christianity. For several centuries now, our country and our culture have given some permission, if not willingness, to practice Christian ideals. But the more we go down the road of forsaking the Lord, the more the culture will not allow us to practice it. The more our own culture, even within the church, we may see idols crop up. You and I must be prepared to confront these idols with the word of the Lord when we embrace them or encounter them. Rather. What are the idols of our days? Well, there are many. Consider just three. There is the greed of wealth, of power, and of status. We are told that we must, at all costs, make ourselves happy by giving ourselves the largest amount of money we can, by giving ourselves the most comfortable life we can, and do nothing but which gives us happiness. Amount for yourselves, material possessions, or in the name of, of minimalism, look down on others who amass for themselves material possessions. It's the same kind of greed of status or of wealth. We must be willing to speak to others, not simply with our words, but with our lives, that says these are idols. And we must be willing to tear them down in our own hearts, to speak out against them in our own churches, and of course stand firm and offer a better way of living. That that which we would consume ourselves in the world, we are satisfied with in Christ, in the church. That's just one idol, the greed of wealth and power and status. There also is what other theologians and commentators have called expressive individualism, which again makes it all about the individual. Who you are is more important and no one can tell you otherwise. If you want to be something different, you can change what you are. You don't have to be a boy or a girl anymore. You don't have to be anything. You don't have to be what others say you must. And listen, I'm all for being able to shake off the shackles of conceptions. But what has happened is that there is no objective truth, there is no reality, there is only what we make it. And expressive individualism says that you can be whatever you want to be and no one can tell you otherwise. Not God, not your neighbor, not the church. Well, this is an idol. It's an idol of self. Again, it pursues and feasts on the pleasure of idolatry because it makes us to be gods above others. Of course, we cannot speak about the destruction of 
children without speaking to one of the most heinous idolatries and sins in our own times, the sin of abortion, where countless children, living creatures, are killed in the womb. We may not sacrifice them to idols in a fire, but many people around the world are killing children, and our culture celebrates and allows it. In fact, we protect this so-called right. But friends, let us be clear. Let me be clear as your pastor. This is a grievous sin. We're not speaking about medically needed transactions that may happen for the life of others. We're talking about those who have elected to kill an innocent. And it happens not just in our country, but there are even churches that celebrate and support abortion. So long as I am pastor of this church, friends, we will work to end abortion in our lives. Not necessarily through political means alone, but we will set ourselves against culture in this respect by being willing to take any and all who are in need of such help, to support mothers who consider it, to embrace the fathers who want to shriek from the responsibility, to tell the culture that they are wrong, that there's value and dignity in life. There are millions upon millions of children who are, who are not born because they are slaughtered in the womb. And we can hear God's judgment upon our nation and all Western nations who practice such things that our nation will be called a nation of slaughter. The judgment is there. You see then the necessity to speak out against such idolatry, to speak out against the idols and the sins of our times. We must feel like Jeremiah in our bones, a fire that says this cannot be so. Do you have such a fire? Maybe you have today just a burning, an inkling, a coal, that you need to be fanned into a burning flame. Maybe the, the way that, that other Christians have gone about it, the, the soapbox Christians on the side of the road have turned you off and you say, it's better to be quiet than to say anything at all, lest I be judged like that guy is. But we do not compare ourselves to them in order to stand up against the idolatries of our culture, even of our own families, by simply speaking the word of truth. We can do so in love, but friends, let us fan the flame of the fire that God has put in our bones to preach and proclaim not just his mercy, but the reality of his coming judgment. And then secondly, let us consider the, the cost of that proclamation. Jeremiah knows it well, as does all those who are faithful in their pursuit of the proclamation of God's judgment. There is a great cost, both physical and emotional. Jeremiah here clearly wrestling emotionally with the call to be a prophet. Those in the New Testament did it to the cost of their own lives. There is a physical and emotional cost in service to the Lord. And you must be willing to pay it. We do so not because we're masochists, because we enjoy pain, but because we know that there is something better for us. Hebrews tells us that even Moses, who had all the wealth in all the nations, forsook it because he considered the reproach of Christ to be a greater gain than all the riches of Egypt. That's a comparison to make. By faith, he was able to do this. And so by faith, we are able to count the cost, follow Christ, pick up our own cross, and, and receive both physical and emotional persecution by others, our family, our friends. But the promise is that the Lord is with us. He says this even there. The Lord is with me in verse 12. Excuse me, verse 11. The Lord is with me as a mighty, strong warrior. And so whatever the persecutors throw at us, we will not stumble. They will stumble. They will not overcome us, but they will be overcome. They will be shamed. They will not succeed. They will receive the eternal dishonor. In our faithfulness, 
and our willingness to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Though we cost, it costs us dearly, we know that the Lord is with us and is with those who serve. Consider Jesus' own words in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And he'll say again, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. There is a great necessity to proclaim the judgment of God, but it comes with a great price. But we not only consider the necessity and its cost in the proclamation of God's judgment, but lastly, we must consider the satisfaction of God's judgment in Christ. For we are told that the righteous alone will withstand God's judgment. The unrighteous shall not stand. But the righteous alone will withstand God's judgment. But Paul picks up on the apostle or picks up on the prophet's words that the righteous shall live by faith, as it says in Hosea. But it is not by faith in our own work. It is faith in Christ. Remember that it is Christ who comes as a prophet. And he is struck down by the priests of his time, by the religious leaders of hope and of judgment just like Jeremiah was preaching and just as Jeremiah prays so Jesus prays a prayer of protest as well as a prayer of praise as he suffers for his people Jeremiah here in chapter 20 recounts something like Psalm 31 as he echoes it in verse 10 but Jesus as he hangs on the cross quotes from Psalm 22 he says my God my God why have you forsaken me is this a protest against God this derision against the Lord? No. This is to recognize that he, like others who are faithful, must suffer. If he is to suffer for the elect, he must face fully the wrath of God for, his, for our sins. Christ was struck down by the priests and the authorities. He preached a message of hope as well as judgment. He prays a prayer of protest and of praise, and he suffers for his people. And though we don't see from Jesus' lips such a desperate prayer and plea like Jeremiah who curses the day he was born. What we see there is a deep desire that this toil and the sorrow that would come upon Judah would be avoided. So Jesus prays this prayer with his own life. Jesus is cursed on the cross. He doesn't say with his mouth, cursed be the day I was born. He with his body becomes a curse on the cross. He enacts this prayer for us. And it's because he is able to be cursed and is willing to be cursed that those who deserve the cursing because of the rebellion and the idolatry and the abominations of our heart receive no such thing but only the mercy of God. And this is the prayer and the plea Jeremiah wants to see his own people, Judah, take for them. And this is the thing that you must take to heart. And it is the prayer and the proclamation you must give to others. That's your job. For those who have received this true hope, having heard the warning of judgment against you, turning to God's mercy offered to you, must then turn to your neighbor and offer the same. That is the role we all play as we follow in the footsteps, not only of Jeremiah, but of Christ our Lord. And we speak not only of our own suffering, but through our suffering, through the cost that we are gladly to pay to Christ's suffering, who pays for all eternity the punishment for sin against those who would trust in him. So I ask, are you willing to do this? Are there those in your life and your path that you have neglected to speak boldly against? In love, 
but with conviction, the word of God that says, this is why this is not okay. Are you willing to speak to your loved ones, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors? This is the cost we must be willing to pay. We don't have to be hated and scorned unnecessarily. But if the world is to hate us, let them hate us because of the gospel. It may feel from time to time like we are getting along well with others in the world. But let it be clear here that God's judgment resides on them and not on us because of the mercy of Christ. And it can be theirs, but it comes from those who are bold enough to speak it. Would you hold out the gospel to others? That Jesus, the Son of God, came man. That he who knew no sin became sin. That you and I would become the righteousness of God. That in order to redeem us from the curse of the law, himself became a curse. And that though he died and suffered completely God's inexhaustible, unending wrath against sin, completely satisfied it on our behalf, and he was risen again on the third day. And his resurrection seals, as hard as it is to believe, seals for us eternity and salvation. That God has accepted his sacrifice. And all those who look at the power of the death of Christ, the power of God which raised him from the dead and says, I can have that kind of life, to those will be given the right to become children of God. They will dwell forever in the household of God. We need not taste the potter's fury. We can embrace the potter's heart of mercy and compassion. But it will only be by those who are willing to speak. It will only be by those who are willing to hear. This is the call of the church, to preach and proclaim the nature of God's judgment, be willing to pay the cost for it, but ultimately rejoice in the satisfaction of God's judgment in the cross of Christ, who made for us a way of eternal salvation. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for Jesus. Much more to be said and considered, but I, I do pray that in the short time we've studied this, our hearts have been pricked and stirred to how, how really dangerous and desperate remaining in our sin is. How close we were before we became Christians to eternal destruction. And that the violence and the difficult words even here in Jeremiah are just a small taste of the judgment. We're thankful for different descriptions that allow us to see the, the, the horrors of hell and the reality of your judgment elsewhere. But God, we pray that we would feel it and in feeling this be so moved to share this with others. And ultimately, God, we pray that our heart would be in thankfulness led to, to, to preach and proclaim to our children, to our neighbors, to all those you would give us to hear the gospel, the beautiful gospel, the gospel of God's grace in Christ that we would have in our very bones a fire to preach, not reserved for guys like me, but for each one of us to go and preach boldly as you have called us to do. Now, Lord, we love you again always, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.